Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. I hope we all find ways to have a pleasant holiday season, given all the obstacles and hazards facing the global communities, our country, and ultimately, our families. My daughters and their families who reside in the Midwest and on the East Coast crossed the time zones with a New York-based dessert, a Milwaukee turkey dinner, and a Los Angeles cocktail hour in a single Zoom call. As Americans, all of us are flexible and adaptive, but that doesn't cure remote fatigue after nine months. On the bright side, one of my UCLA colleagues became pregnant and delivered a healthy baby boy all during the lockdown periods, so happiness found a way. I hope to give thanks next year that the vaccines turned out to be proven highly effective and that all of us have a new appreciation for family get-togethers, safe travel, work, and related water cooler discussions, and importantly, sports and entertainment events. Meanwhile, today, I'll share thoughts on why the Federal Reserve and U.S. Treasury will do their utmost to keep pumping up the money supply, encouraging inflation, keep interest rates close to zero, and keep borrowing more and more to fund the many deficits throughout federal, state, and city governments. I'll also discuss who wins, how they win, who loses, and how they lose in 2021, no matter who wins the presidency. We, as a country, will have to work our way out of the huge mess we're in with respect to the unsustainable and unrepayable amounts of debt our various levels of government are rapidly growing. But before we begin, here are a few notes on our podcast schedule. With UCLA closed for essentially the last half of December, the final 2020 podcast will be recorded and released in about two weeks following our usual pattern. We'll know more about 2021 and its recovery prospects in two weeks, given the availability of comprehensive November employment data, the new COVID-related business closures across most states, and global central bank money creation, debt monetization. In the new year, we'll record a New Year's podcast with even more data availability for our release on or about January 10th. And from then, we'll be planning to continue our every two-week schedule. Let's begin today with the big picture that is chock full of threats, challenges, and financial risks. First, the highlights of our situation. Number one, the world is choking on the unsustainable levels of debt and new debt issued week to week. The sum of all debt in the world is just over $250 trillion, and the wealth of the world is estimated to be about $350 trillion, so back calculating the total market value of all assets, real estate, stocks, bonds, retirement funds, mutual funds, etc., is about $600 trillion. Let me say that another way. I'll start with the final number first. The market value of all assets globally is approximately $600 trillion. And of that $600 trillion, $250 trillion or so is financed by debt. And that leaves equity 
of about $350 trillion. $600 trillion of asset value minus debt of $250 is about $350 trillion of equity. So the world's debt is over 40% of the market value of all the assets. I'm going to come back to that in the podcast we're going to plan for two weeks from now. But I just want to put that out there and have you think about that as we go through some smaller examples to give you the idea of some of the risks that we're facing and also why the Federal Reserve will continue pretty much unabated on its policies that under Mnuchin and no matter who the Secretary of Treasury is, particularly if it's Janet Yellen, Janet Yellen has a record of defending Ben Bernanke and basically issuing substantial amounts of debt and supporting the Fed's issuance of new money after the 0809 Great Recession. So she is battle-hardened, and she's on the same path as Mnuchin now and Jay Powell. And Jay Powell's term extends pretty much through 2024. So the Federal Reserve is in place under existing leadership for four more years, and either Mnuchin or Janet Yellen will be Secretary of Treasury, so it seems. They are supportive of these policies and plans. And again, we'll come back to that later on too. We've seen rapid inflation over the past 10 years, 10 plus years, in the major global investable assets. And the large categories of investable assets are real estate, the stock markets, the bond market, now at a point where interest rates are close to zero. So that's been a very popular place for investment over the past 10 years. Meanwhile, the government calculated the consumer price indices were growing close to only 2% a year. I'll come back to that too. Why am I giving you this data? To help you appreciate why the world's central banks need to keep interest rates near zero forever, as long as they can, and continue to pump up the inflation of assets. Stick with me, you'll see this week and in two weeks again. Let's imagine the personal scenario, just a scenario Imagine that you bought a house in 2010, or let's not make it that personal. Let's say a person bought a house in 2010 for $500,000, California house, and the homeowner borrowed 50%. So they put $250,000 down, they borrowed $250,000 on a mortgage to buy the $500,000 house. Over the next 10 to 12 years, the house appreciated to a million dollars, which is 6% or so a year. And let's say this happened from the 08-09 Great Recession to about now at the end of 2020. And this is pretty realistic. Further imagine one of the spouses, since almost all American families have two working spouses, if the family size is two or more, One spouse lost his or her job, pretty realistic. So the homeowner borrowed or refied the house every year for an additional $25,000. And that money that would be refied is tax-free income, tax-free money. So the point is the house is appreciating and the $25,000 per year is being added to the mortgage. And year to year, that keeps the mortgage at about 50% where it started. Of course, it's 50% of a million instead of 50% of 500,000. So the worst case, if the refis happened over 10 years or so, the homeowner borrowed each year the amount of after-tax money that was lost by a typical second wage earner, dropping the household down to one wage earner. This is not so unusual. Okay, let's get to the point. The family income went down 
but the family lifestyle stayed the same via the borrowing. And the house asset grew too. So all is good, right? Additionally, the first mortgage was made at 6% and the new debt and refis took the interest rate all the way down to about 3%. So not only did the mortgage double from 250000 to 500000 but interest rates dropped so much that the monthly mortgage payment stayed about the same. Sounds wonderful, right? As long as interest rates don't increase, the month-to-month is a sort of sustainable lifestyle, assuming that every year the homeowner can continue to borrow an additional $25,000 to keep the lifestyle going. Of course, real estate values have to keep increasing with no let-up. Banks have to continue their lending practices, and the homeowner needs to keep his or her job or an equivalent job. Now we're talking about the concept of risk. Risk is real. Risk is just hard to quantify and impossible to forecast on a timing basis. The risk that this example relates to relates to the systemic risk across our country right now, not only at the family level, but the government level. Here's where we're headed. It's not an accident when all the major categories of assets trend up for years. Real estate up, stocks up, bond prices up. And of course, that means mutual funds are up and many retirement plans are up. And this is in a period where American savings rates are historically low. So it's not because Americans are saving more and more of their income. That's not why these categories of assets went up. I would just think about that for a second. As the Federal Reserve effectively prints more and more dollars, these dollars inflate the value of assets, which can be really positive for people who are investors. Who are the investors? The very top wage earners and wealth owners. Who gets left out? The 50% or so of Americans who rent live paycheck to paycheck and earn less than $50,000 a year. This is the very group impacted by the COVID lockdowns and who make up a vast number of today's unemployed or those employed at part-time jobs unable to find full-time jobs. Actually, they're hit with a double whammy since they also face consumer goods inflation, which is far higher than the 2% or so reported by official government sources. And we've discussed that. To get the idea, just think of how movie prices have increased over the past 10 years or so. How about childcare expenses, medical deductibles, or those not able to afford medical insurance at all, car insurance increases, and so forth. At the other end of the income and wealth spectrum are those who own the lion's share of investment assets, including their homes, mutual funds, stocks, bonds, and other real estate. Asset inflation is great for them as they are savers and they spend far less than they earn. There is one other major group that benefits from higher inflation. That's the governments that continuously overspend versus what they bring in and ramp up their borrowings to cover their deficits, including our federal government. Inflation 
which is positive for them, moves taxpayers into higher income tax brackets and simultaneously increases their property tax collections as real estate prices go up. In California, inflation is particularly important to the state as the state collects a significant amount of their total annual budget from the capital gains of those taxpayers making money in the stock market as well as the real estate market. So inasmuch as our elected and appointed officials publicly despise inflation, they directly benefit from it, and I assume embrace it. These days, they count on the Federal Reserve buying their government bonds, which they need to issue to keep money coming in to balance the spending, but also receive tax benefits from the resulting asset appreciation coming from the inflation. Here's what I think I've learned that's relevant to our present situation. First of all, since the 2008-9 Great Recession, the world's governments have spearheaded the new and vast amounts of debt and new money creation. The result of excessive government debt and money creation is always inflation, and we are experiencing it. We see it in real estate, stocks, bonds, and we find it a little bit hard to quantify in consumer items such as health insurance, taxes and fees, utility bills, personal services, movies, sporting events, cable bills, and many consumer merchandise items. I've mentioned in prior podcasts those research companies that track these items, and that supports inflation rates not of 2% a year, but anywhere between 6 and 11% a year. We know that a family of four, one generation earlier than now, had one wage earner. I think it was 1.2, and we're about 1.8 uh, going into 2020 or thereabouts. That a family of four, one generation earlier, had closer to one wage earner, closer to one car, free quality public schools, lower local taxes, fewer household help and childcare expenses, and a savings rate, if we go back toward the longer end of a generation ago, Savings rates closer to 15% of household income, where now we are up to 4 or 5%, maybe in a good quarter, a bit higher. COVID for several months has spiked the savings rate, and it generated a lot of fear in the system. But that high savings rate that COVID generated back in March, April, May is dropping rapidly now. It's still higher than historically, but the annual savings rates for years and years, a generation or so ago, was 15% versus in the neighborhood of 4% in recent years. Due to cheaper imports, we know the cost of clothing and electronics have gone down, but we also know that these cheaper items hardly make a dent in all the items that do have and have had significant price increases. So if families don't own real estate or have stock and bond investments, they not only feel poorer each year because they are poorer each year. This is a key reason that wealth becomes more and more concentrated in our economy, and all the data that we see shows that continuing to happen, and concentration of wealth is the highest it's been in the recorded financial history of America at this time. Inflation helps not only the wealthiest families, but helps refinance government debt and issue more and more debt. Let me just say that one more time. Inflation not only helps the wealthiest families, but it helps the governments refinance their debt and issue more and more new debt. And that's where we are now, in my view. 
What are the 2021 threats that can cause a major hiccup in these trends? And when there is a hiccup, as we've seen in 08-09, the dominoes begin to fall, and that's what is typically called a black swan event. What can cause a major hiccup in the trends we have now? Well, an accelerated movement of money into the appreciating asset groups which are now real estate and stocks, as bonds are pretty much at their maximum with interest rates close to zero. So accelerated movement of money from bonds into real estate and stocks and out of long-term bonds. And this is my most likely scenario for what it's worth. And that's my view. The Federal Reserve and world central banks will be left to refinance government debt coming due and buying new government-issued debt. This pathway leads to inflating the debt away, since repaying these debts is near impossible at this point. All of this brings about some changes that are really important, and we've seen some of these already. One of them, which we also saw during the Great Depression, as well as the even greater depression back in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, is increasing civil unrest. The Long Depression, which was the one in the late 1800s, was a worldwide price and economic recession. It was attributed to begin in 1873, and some argue it went as long as 1896. So 23 years. And that depends upon the metrics that are used to define depression, where the beginning and the end is. But generally accepted, it was a 23-year depression. 23 years is a long time. It was the most severe in Europe and in the United States. It began or it coincided with the Panic of 1873. And the Panic of 1873 has been described as the first truly international crisis. The optimism then that had been driving booming stock prices reached a fever pitch and fears of a bubble culminated in a stock market panic, including the bankruptcy of a quarter of all the U.S. railroads and general unemployment estimated to be between 20 and 25 percent across the United States. There was no Federal Reserve at the time and no backstop to purchase large issues of debt. Strikes, riots, and economic polarization ruled during these two decades, but stock and bond market crashes hit the wealthy pretty hard, so they didn't escape it. Many new government programs were proposed to create employment opportunities, but few of them were approved and financed. In hindsight, this depression was the poster child for deflation and its downward spiral of decreasing business investment, decreasing jobs, and in general, economic hopelessness. If we move ahead to the next one, the Great Depression in the 1930s was much shorter. It was about 10 years, which is still a long time, but versus 20 plus years, but had similar negative impacts. Once again, 20 to 25% unemployment, multiple stock and bond market crashes, bankruptcies, and serious social unrest define the period. Another key similarity with the prior depression was the massive deflation of all asset groups. Given that the relatively inexperienced Federal Reserve kept the nation's money supply restricted, 
Important lessons were learned. Former federal chairman Bernanke was a student of this depression and acted to create many new sources of new money during the 08-09 Great Recession and afterwards for additional deflation fighting. As I mentioned, his successor Janet Yellen defended the vast amounts of money that were created by the Fed to mitigate the 08-09 Great Recession. In fact, if we move to one of Janet Yellen's speeches on June 27th of 2017, Yellen generated somewhat a bit of controversy, I guess, when she stated that she did not expect another financial crisis, quote, in our lifetime. Famous last words, maybe. Hopefully not. Why do I mention this? We know that present Secretary Mnuchin is an advocate of continued money creation and government debt, with the possibility or probability that Yellen may replace him. And Yellen seems to be somewhat comfortable that these policies will continue, at least until the next general election in 2024. And for more perspective and predictability, as I also mentioned, Jay Powell's term as Federal Reserve Chairman continues to or through 2024. So we have four years ahead of us that I wouldn't say are predictable, but appear to be predictable pending another black swan event. Let me just say it that way. In sum, we expect four more years of similar money creation and debt issuance by the U.S. Treasury, no matter who's president. And, okay, what are these implications and and what do I need to think about for my family? The first risk is interest rates. Today, interest rates are the lowest in history and zero is pretty much the lowest bound or boundary. Best case is that interest rates stay where they are for four more years. Worst case, the continued money creation and debt rollovers with more and more new debt added, caused the large money managers around the world to lose confidence in interest rates staying so low. Always remember anyone, including you or me, who owns a long-term government bond that pays a low interest rate faces substantial losses when interest rates trend upward. The market value of the bond automatically trends downward, simultaneously, I should say. Large bond investors, such as pension funds, who are already in trouble, sovereign wealth funds, who are a fickle group on investing, insurance companies, who are forced to immediately report bond portfolio market value losses, which to them means lower reserves, which means they can underwrite smaller and smaller amounts of new business, mutual funds, and money market funds, and the money market funds are fighting to break even not making, in many cases, what it costs to manage the money market fund because interest rates are so low. And meanwhile, they face fund outflows while under pressure to break even. And then we'll include other key participants like the Social Security Administration. All of these people are likely to become bond sellers, not new bond buyers, in quantity. With the Federal Reserve mopping up the government debt, which is expected to be $8 trillion of debt issued by the U.S. government over the next year, that includes refinance debt and new debt, $8 trillion. Long-term interest rates can move up in 2021 if the Federal Reserve doesn't buy possibly all of the $8 trillion dollars. And we haven't seen their specific plan other than they only assumed they would buy about half of it. Well, half of it is $4 trillion, which is huge. We just added almost $4 trillion to the Federal Reserve balance sheet since the 08-09 Great Recession. And at even picking up half of the maturing debt and new debt, the Federal Reserve would be adding that much every year if they only bought half. So 
it's going to be interesting to watch this. So th there is a finite probability, which I can't predict today, that long-term interest rates will move up in 2021, despite these efforts. We'll see. Higher real inflation expectations could be another hiccup. Higher real inflation expectations would be the proximate cause of investors avoiding new long-term bond investments unless the interest rates were higher. And long-term interest rates are not controlled by the Federal Reserve. The bond market each day of the of each business day of the week trades well over a trillion dollars of value. That's per day. So the Federal Reserve buying $4 trillion or $8 trillion in a year is nothing compared to the trading volume of the long-term bonds day to day. A lot of these bond trades are made by global investors and other governments, and the amount of trading is it's huge. It's not possible. And I think all economists would agree it's not possible for the Federal Reserve to control the long-term market, although they will try, and they have tried. The higher interest rate scenario is one that could bring high volatility to the world's stock markets and also real estate and also most other asset groups, which in turn could feed upon itself. So at this point, I covered the present situation, those who benefit, those who lose, why the Federal Reserve and U.S. government Department of Treasury will try their best to stay on current course and the likelihood, although I didn't give it a number, that all of these efforts to stay on current course can continue on and allow the markets just to continue smoothly upward on investable assets. So we have uh, a lot of risks ahead of us, and I hope the example I gave you on the mortgage gave you a specific idea of what risk means, even though it doesn't directly apply to the global situation. The intent was to give you a first-hand feeling of what risk means as we are trying to add to your education and knowledge of financial markets to help you apply your own risk tolerance and your own investment objectives to your, your family. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not giving specific investment advice. In the meantime, be well, be safe, and be financially careful. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.